0: Our family is glad to be back today after uh, two weeks absence and my own three weeks absence from being behind this pulpit. We've been camping, we've been taking care of some projects and a lot of high school football. We missed all of you and we're excited to see all of you this morning and to be with all of you this morning. Thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for praying for us while we were gone. Several of you... uh, seemed to miss my preaching over the last few weeks and said some things, not because the preaching was bad, but you said some things that that made me feel like you were excited for me to be back, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. Today, we're going to finish our sermon series on this great book uh, that we have been studying. And then the plan is on September 9th, so in two weeks, we'll begin our next sermon series Uh, which is going to be a long look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I expect that will take us all the way through uh, 2019 and into 2020. So, Lord willing, that is what we will be studying together for the next year and a half or so. Here has been the central theme of Ecclesiastes. All of life under the sun is vanity. Yet God is sovereign and he gives his people the power to enjoy it. Therefore, the central application has been fear and obey God and enjoy it. Life is vanity, but enjoy the gifts that God has given you. That is the central wisdom In this book of Ecclesiastes, life is vanity, but God is over all of it. And he gives his people, he gives his children the power and the ability to enjoy it. So enjoy it. That's his application. That is his realistic, Solomon's realistic look at life that we're all in. And then that is his exhortation, his application. Because of who you are and because of who God is, enjoy the gifts that God has given you. So now, with only six verses to go, here is how the author wraps it up. Here is his closing message. Wisdom. This book, for example, that we've been studying, Ecclesiastes, Wisdom is from God and for life. That is his closing message. Wisdom is from God and for life. By God's grace, we'll see that in our text today. But first, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven thank you for another opportunity to come together as your people and open up your book and learn we ask that you would help us to with our minds understand your word we ask that you would use our understanding to stir our hearts toward you that we would love you more and also our wills that whatever needs to change in our life, would change as a result of you working in us by your Holy Spirit and through the preaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't have your own Bible, you'll find today's text. On page 360. And as we read today. Keep in mind Solomon's closing message. Wisdom is from God and for life. We'll say that over and over again. That is his closing theme. Wisdom is from God and for life. Keep that in mind as we read. Let's begin with verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher, that's Solomon, the author of this book. He was wise, but he wasn't just wise. Besides being wise, he also taught the people knowledge. How did he do that? By weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So Solomon passed on wisdom, we're told, by writing proverbs With great care. What is a proverb? Well verse 10 tells us. Here's a good definition of a proverb. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. So here's what a proverb is. A proverb merges words of delight. And words of truth. That's what a proverb does. A proverb is truth told delightfully or truth told beautifully. That's what a proverb does. It doesn't just give you truth. It gives you truth written beautifully. A proverb is winsomely written truth. For example, I could say listening to wise instruction is important. That'd be a true statement. I could say that listening to wise instruction is important. Or I could say Proverbs 4.13. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. You see the difference? That's a proverb that is winsomely written truth. And so Proverbs are what you find in all three of Solomon's books, right? His book of Proverbs, his song of Solomon, and then his late life reflection, which we've been studying, Ecclesiastes. So Solomon, we're being told here at the end of his book, Solomon was not just interested in gaining wisdom he wanted to pass it on. He just wasn't just interested in downloading information. He wanted to upload that information to his readers. To you and to me. He wants to pass his wisdom on. Why did he want to do that? Why, did he, why was that so important to Solomon? To not just gain wisdom, but to pass it on? Well, because verse 11. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. In other words, wisdom is for life. That's why he wants to pass it on. Because wisdom is for life. And he says two things in that verse. Number one, wise words are like goads. Most of you don't have a goad. At home right now. A goad is like a cattle prod. Most of you don't have a cattle prod at home. A goad was a long, sharp stick, and a shepherd would use that long, sharp stick to poke his sheep, to move his sheep, to guide his sheep. Wise words are like goads. Wise words move you. Wise words guide you. Wise words will poke you. Wise words will cut you. Wise words will stab you. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. So the words of the wise are like. Goads, they will move you and they will guide you. Let me give an example of a proverb that is a goad in Ecclesiastes. For me, one would be Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That often jabs me. And it moves me. And it guides me. How should I live? How should I work? Whatever it is that God has given me to do, I should do it with all my might. Not half heartedly, not lazily. I should do it. I should muster up every bit of might I have. And whatever it is that God has given me to do, whether I want to do it or whether I don't want to do it, it does not matter. I'm called by God to do it with all my might. So when I read that, it's a goad. That pokes me, that moves me, that guides me into action. That wisdom is for life. He says, not only is wisdom like a goad, number two, wise words are like nails. The text says that the collected sayings, the wise words are like nails firmly fixed. Nails provide stability. Nails provide security. Wise words are like that. Wise words steady and secure you. Wise words nail your feet to the floor of truth. Solomon probably had something more in mind like tent stakes. I told you we've been camping. And when you set up a tent... If you're wise, you're going to use tent stakes. You're going to pin all four corners of your tent to the ground. And you're going to do that so that if the weather changes, if it gets windy, your tent's not going to become a kite. Your tent's going to be secure. You're going to be safe. You're going to be secure. That's what tent stakes are for. This is what nails are for. Wise words do that for your life. So if you don't have wisdom... It's just the slightest wind comes along, the slightest difficult circumstance comes along, and you're a mess. Okay, here's a proverb from Ecclesiastes that are like nails that firmly fix me. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He, this is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That is a nail that firmly fixes me over and over again. Because it's true. I want to find out what God has done from beginning to end. I want to know what God's specific plan is. I want to know what he's up to. I want to know the future. I want to know what's around the corner. It's not enough for me often to know that it's going to turn out good. I want to know how it's going to turn out good. And I'm reminded, this nail firmly fixes me, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Not my time, but His time. So I'm reminded that God is in control. I'm reminded that God has a plan. And I'm reminded that God is good. And even those things in my life which look really ugly to me right now, I know, are going to be beautiful In time, that's a tent stake for me that keeps me nailed to the floor of truth. So what Solomon is saying is that I'm passing on wisdom like these 12 chapters that we've studied together that he just wrote. I'm passing this wisdom on because this wisdom is for your life. This wisdom will move you. This wisdom will guide you. This wisdom will secure you because it is meant for your life. Not only that. Look at the end of verse 11. What else is said about wisdom here? It's from God. Wisdom is from God. The text says, The wise words, the collected sayings are given by one shepherd. Psalm 95, seven says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Psalm 23, one says, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 81 calls God the shepherd of Israel, the one shepherd. In this verse, the one shepherd who gives wisdom is God. Christians, do we believe this? That God alone is the source of all wisdom. True wisdom comes from God and nowhere else. True wisdom comes from God and nowhere else. If you want to know how to live your life, you are going to need wisdom. And that wisdom can only come from God. Wisdom, what is Solomon saying, is from God and it is for life. Verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, these, these words given by the one shepherd. That's the context, isn't it? The wisdom that comes from the one shepherd, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end. There was a lot of stuff to read then. There's even more stuff to read now. And Solomon's advice is beware. Beware. Christians, he's saying, do not be naive. Christians, he's saying, use discernment. Don't just read anything. Don't just assume that because it says it's from the Bible, it's from the Bible. Don't just assume because it's put out by a Christian publisher that it's Christian. Don't just assume that because it claims to help you understand the Bible, it's going to help you understand the Bible. Solomon is saying, beware of many books. There is no end. But beware of anything beyond these wise words given by our one true shepherd. So there are, and you know this, there are many books out there claiming to have wisdom, but this book alone is the source of all wisdom. That's what he's saying. This book alone from the one shepherd is the source of all wisdom, which means that this book, Christian, must take preeminence over everything else you read. The Bible, for the Christian, sits in the place of ultimate preeminence over fiction, over articles, over news, Over other Christian books. Over everything. So make sure the Bible is number one. Make sure if you're reading anything, you're reading the Bible. People will say things, I've heard people say things like, Christians say things like, I'm not really a reader, so reading the Bible is hard for me. And I've gotten to the point in my life where that doesn't make sense anymore. And if someone says they're not a reader, if they mean they're illiterate and you can't read. I understand that. And so learn to read. And the whole reason for learning to read, by the way, throughout history has been so that you can read a Bible. That's the reason we learn to read so that we can read the Bible above anything else. But most of us who say that we're not readers, and I used to say of myself that I was not a reader, I still read the things I like. I had no problem reading sports articles. No problem reading menus. (laughs) No problem reading statistics. No problem in any of that. It's a heart issue, isn't it? I need to read God's word. If you're going to read anything else, and of course you can read other things, but when it comes to God, read things that help you understand God's Word. And be careful, because not everything, again, that claims to help you understand the Bible is going to help you understand the Bible. So, for example, if you go to your typical Christian bookstore, and I've said this before, just be very careful, because typically... Those who own and run Christian bookstores, not everybody, but typically those who own and run Christian bookstores are not very good gatekeepers of what's being put on their shelves. And so people might go in there and if you're naive and if you're not discerning, you may grab something that's being recommended because it's sold in a Christian bookstore and it ultimately wouldn't be good for you. So find a Christian that you know and love and respect that knows God's word, you think much better than you do, and ask them whether or not they would recommend a book, not just a publisher. Books get published not because they tell a lot, because they sell a lot. So be discerning. Be careful. One more thing before the king's closing words. He says it in the second half of verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end. And then here it is. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So. The professor has said, beware. Wisdom is only from God. Beware, wisdom is only from God. And now he's saying, beware. Wisdom is for Life. He's driving home the same point again. Wise words are not ultimately for studying. They are for living. These words from God. These words that. We study here on a Sunday, these words that you study throughout the week in your own personal reading of the Bible. These words of God, this wisdom that you're gaining, listen, needs to get from your head to your fingertips. It's got to get from your head to your fingertips. Theology is for life. Knowing is for living. If your doctrine does not make you love God more and love people more, something is wrong with your doctrine. You've blown a fuse somewhere. There's a disconnect. The point is not for our heads to swell up. With theology and doctrine. The point is for our theology and doctrine to affect our hearts and effect our actions. It should change us. So if you're amassing theology and amassing doctrine and you're really good at that. But your life isn't changing. I'm sounding the alarm for you. Something is wrong. And it's important to say that. In a church that values sound doctrine. And you know that we do. Let me say it this way. And this this may mean something to some of you. To the ones who don't get it. That's okay. Let me say it this way. If we're picking teams. So I'm just I'm picking teams here. If we are picking teams, I will take the Arminian who applies his doctrine every single time over the Calvinist who doesn't. Every time. For some of you men, especially young men in the church today, Your interest in sound doctrine is premature. You are not ready to eat meat. Because you are infantile in your application of the basic gospel. So that has to come first. Go back to be my counsel. Go back to the thing Paul says of most importance. Go back to the thing of most importance, the gospel, and get the gospel from your head to your heart and out through your fingertips first. Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book in the 1600s, and in the beginning of his book, he actually, and authors don't do this very often, I don't think, he actually warns his readers not to read his book if they're not going to do it. He says, so if you're reading this just to study it, he says, don't don't read this book. The title of the book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Which I don't think would be a very popular title today. Probably wouldn't sell a lot of copies. It's kind of like John Owen's 17th century classic, The Mortification of Sin. I don't know if you know, but that's actually not the whole title. The title of that book, think about a book on a shelf today and how many copies it would sell called this. Of the mortification of sin in believers, the necessity, nature, and means of it, with a resolution of sundry cases of conscience thereunto belonging. That's not your best life now. By any stretch. So let me, let me quote to you from the beginning of his book. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. Remember, it is not hasty reading But serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bees touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest and strongest Christian. Know that it is not the knowing, nor the talking, nor the reading man, but the doing man that at last will be found the happiest man. If you know these things, blessed and happy are you if you do them, said Jesus. Judas called Christ Lord and yet betrayed him and has gone to his place. Ah, how many Judases have we in these days that kiss Christ and yet betray him in their words, profess him, but in their works, deny him. That bow their knee to him, and yet in their hearts despise him, that call him Jesus and yet will not obey him as Lord. Reader, if it be not strong upon thy heart to practice what thou readest, to what end dost thou read? To increase thine own condemnation? If thy light and knowledge be turned into practice, be turned not into practice, the more knowing man thou art, the more miserable man thou wilt be in the day of recompense. Thy light and knowledge will torment thee than all the devils in hell. Thy knowledge will be that rod that will eternally lash thee. The scorpion that will forever bite thee. The worm that will everlasting gnaw thee. Therefore, read and labor to know in order that thou mayest do or else thou art undone forever. Solomon is saying in verses 9 through 12. That he has worked very hard to pass on truth for life. That's what he's worked hard to do in Ecclesiastes. Truth that will move you. Truth that will guide you. Truth that will steady you. Wisdom. He's saying read it. Understand it. Apply it. Read it. Meditate on it. And put it into action. Because wisdom is is from God, and it is for life. Okay, two final verses. Last two verses of this book. And very fittingly, the professor ends with a final bit of wisdom for life. Maybe the best for last year. And it sort of boils down your life for you. Look at verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. Let's think about these last two verses as we end this book. That is wisdom for life. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you want life simplified for you. If you, want, if you want to know how God expects you to live your life. If you want to know what the best way to live your life is. If you, if you want to know what way of living Will result in your maximum joy. It's this. Focus on this. Fear God. And keep his commandments. Solomon. Has ten commandments in mind. Think about when he's writing. Most definitely Solomon has ten commandments in mind. The catechism that we're going through as a church and uh, along with the entire Bible's commentary on the Ten Commandments and Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, uh, it elaborates on these Ten Commandments that God gives to us and that Solomon has in mind when he says, here's what you should focus on, keep these commandments. So let me read you from our catechism. This is just an elaboration on what the Bible has to say. About these commandments. Let's understand. What does this look like? What does it mean to keep. God's commandments. First. That we know and trust God. As the only true and living God. Second. That we avoid all idolatry. And do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and his works. Fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment. Serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor. But be patient and peaceful. Pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh. That we abstain from sexual immorality. And live purely and faithfully. Whether in marriage or in single life. Avoiding all impure actions. Looks. Words. Thoughts. Or desires. And whatever might lead to them. Eighth, That we do not take without permission. That which belongs to someone else. Nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Ninth. That we do not lie or deceive. But speak the truth in love content that we are content not envying anyone or resenting what god has given them or us that's what solomon is talking about fear god and keep those commandments Later on in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 22, the disciples will ask Jesus about the commandments and He will, much like Solomon does, He will boil things down and summarize and says, here's what you're supposed to do. And it's really a summary of the Ten Commandments. Love God. Love God. With all your heart. With all your mind. With all your soul. With all your strength. And your neighbor... Love him as you love yourself. This is what we're called to do. If you say you're a Christian, this is how you are called to live. This is how God has said we should live every day of our life, abiding by these commandments. That when we do, he will be glorified and it will ultimately go well for us. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then there are two reasons. So we close out this letter. He gives two reasons, doesn't he? A four and a four. Keep the commandments, fear God, four and then four. Here are the two reasons. First. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the chief end of man. This is the whole duty of man. In other words, Solomon is saying fear and obey God because that is what you were made to do. That is what you were created to do. And if you're doing anything other than fearing God and keeping his commandments, okay, but you're not doing what you were made to do. You're not doing what you were built to do. You have been created by God. And you have been created by God to make much of him. You've been created by God to worship him. You've been created by God to love him. You've been created by God to fear him and to keep his commandments. And there's a second reason. It's quite a verse to end his book with. This is the very last verse of the book. Here's the second reason. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. Whether good or evil. What a way to end his book. What a closing thought. What a closing image. He ends with judgment day. He ends with the day of judgment. He's saying to all his readers. Believers in God, not believers in God. He's saying to all of us, Christian here this morning, not a Christian here this morning. He's saying to people. Here's what you should do. This is what you've been built to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then his final reason and motivation to all of us for that is fear God and keep his commandments. Because one day you will face his judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment. Judgment. People will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. So here's the question. The most important question. On the day of judgment, will you stand or fall? That day is coming. Friend, that day is unavoidable. Whatever you think, whatever you've been taught. That day is coming. Imagine that day. That's why Solomon brings it up. Picture that day. As you stand before God the judge. Will you remain standing? Or will you fall? No one, Christian, not Christian, no one on that day will stand with any sort of self righteousness. We sung about that in one of our songs this morning. I had no righteousness of my own. So none of us, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, been a Christian for a week, been a Christian for 50 years. None of us on that day when we face God and we face judgment, none of us will be able to appeal to any good thing in us. What a good person I am, how much better I am than so and so. And this accomplishment that I had and this reputation in the church and I was a pastor and I did this and I did that. None of that is going to fly. Romans 3.10 says in that sense, no one is righteous, no, not even one. So we're all coming to that day. We're all coming to that day when we're going to stand before God in his judgment and we will have no righteousness in our own self. We'll have no reason within us to appeal to to stand before God and not be condemned. So let's talk about unbelievers and believers. When Solomon brings up fearing God and keeping his commandments, there are two kinds of fear. There are two kinds of fear. And every single one of you is going to experience one of these kinds of fears on Judgment Day. It will either be that you will fear God Because you stand condemned. Or you will fear God. Because you stand forgiven. So let's look at the difference. First. To those of you who are. Not believers. And it would be wise for all of you who. Say that you are believers. To still consider your faith. And whether or not you actually are a Christian. So don't take it for granted. Don't don't think, oh, well, I got baptized 20 years ago. Or I had a really good week this last week. Or mom and dad told me I was a Christian since I was born. Or don't take any of those things. Those are all not good ways of evaluating whether or not you right now are here in the faith in Christ. So consider this. Job said, the Almighty... We cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. If you want to turn there with me, let's look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. In Romans chapter 2, Paul brings two things together that we're interested in right now. Unbelievers and judgment. Now, in this case, these are unbelievers who don't think they're condemned. That's the most frightening place to be ever. So these are good people. These are people for who, whatever reason... Because of their good deeds. Because they compare themselves to other people who are worse. Because of their religion. Whatever it is. They think that. They're going to pass through judgment and into heaven. But they're not. Because they're not actually Christians. So listen to what he says here. Therefore you have no excuse oh man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So one of the things that's going on is there's a looking down. There's a looking down. You do that. But this person does the same thing. You're not safe. You're not going to heaven. You're not good. You're not righteous because you do that. But you've got your own stuff that you pay no attention to. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4 Here's what so many people do today. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? People aren't believers. People aren't Christians. People don't love God. People aren't honoring God. People aren't committed to Christ. People aren't committed to Christ's body, the church. But God is patient. But God is kind. And God is good. And I'm not bad. I'm not wicked. I'm a good person. So there's a presumption. So, of course, God's okay with me. That's what he's pointing out. Do you not know, he says, that God's kindness, it is true, God is kind, but it is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are, here's where the fear starts to come in, you are storing up wrath. For yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and what does it say? Do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So fear God. If you are not a believer, if you are still going your own way, if you are still ignoring God, if you are still living for yourself and not for Him, what is waiting for you, according to Paul in Romans chapter 2, is wrath and fury. Pure wrath and fury. Fear God. Fear God. Some will fear God because they stand condemned. Others, and this is believers now, these are Christians now. I'll explain what that means. Fear God because you stand forgiven. Well, why would someone who's forgiven fear God? But it's right here in Psalm 130. This is, as Martin Luther said, another kind of fear. Everyone should fear God. Whether you're a Christian or not, you fear God. You don't become a Christian and stop fearing God. You don't fear Him any longer in the same way, like cowering, terrified of His judgment. But there still is a fear of God. And it is based on Psalm 134. The fact that he has forgiven you. It's Christian fear of God. So what does that look like? Well, maybe one of the best places this is described. Is by C.S. Lewis in his book. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Some of you are familiar with the story. You might even be familiar with this passage. Let me quote it to you. This is a conversation Between Lucy and Susan and Peter and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And as in everything that C.S. Lewis wrote. Right. There's always truth about God that he is seeking to communicate. Like J.R. Tolkien and many others. He wrote great stories. But with deep meaning about God. So listen to this. Uh, in In this Passage, Lucy is asking about Aslan, the lion, and they're kind of getting freaked out and scared about this lion that they're going to face. So, Lucy asks, Is he a man? Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter says this. And this really brings home this godly fear. This fear that a Christian has. Peter said, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. And then Lewis goes on to describe this. He said, People sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found that they couldn't look at him and they went all trembly. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. And they now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. What's he talking about? The Christian fear of God. The fear of someone who stands before God forgiven, the fear that someone has Though they know that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A deep reverence. That is based on. Understanding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know the gospel today? Today. Do you know the good news? Do you believe the gospel today? This is what separates the believer from the non-believer. Believe what? The gospel. Do you know who God is? This gets to the heart of the gospel. Do you know who God is? Do you know that there is a God and he is holy? Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Hebrew literature, saying a word one, two, three times. Is to say. It's so beyond our understanding and comprehension. He's not just holy, he's holy, 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 meaning there is nothing like God. There is no one like God. He is totally and completely set apart from everything else in creation, in the universe. His holiness refers to his infinite perfections. Everything that is God and is in God is totally and completely perfect. John said God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. This is who God is. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is sovereign, which means that he is over everything. He is in control of everything, that everything that happens is according to his decree, that everything happens is his providence, that he has not given up any responsibility, Has not given up any authority, that not once has he been surprised, not once has anything fallen through the cracks. He is completely and totally sovereign and he is the creator of everything that you know. Everything that you know. And he created everything that you know by speaking it into existence. He created you. He created you with design and with purpose. And he created you to know him. He created you to love him. To obey him, to enjoy him, to tell others about him. And here's the bad news Isaiah 53 6 says, We all like sheep, we've gone astray. And so often you don't love God. Maybe you're here and you don't even believe in God. Maybe you're here and you don't even believe the gospel. You go your own way. You serve yourself, not others. You think thoughts that God does not want you to think. You say words that God doesn't want you to say. You do things that God doesn't want you to do. Everything that you have has been given to you by God and for God. And yet you use it for your own selfish motives. And even those of you who are Christians, you still do this over and over and over again. And what else is God? He is just. He is just. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. God is just and he is right. To punish sin. And so every single one of us is on our way to Matthew 12. We're on our way to Romans 2. We're on our way to facing God in judgment. This God who is holy, this God who is righteous, this God who is sovereign, this God we cannot escape, this God who is just and right to punish sin. Now, here's the question that introduces the good news What else is God? He's, he's holy and he's, he's righteous and He's just. And we keep reading and we come to the Gospel. First pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 and carried on throughout the entire Bible, the good news that God is merciful. He's merciful. And out of His mercy, He has made a way for those who have gone astray and gone their own way. He has made a way to get them back to God. Jesus. Jesus came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners like you and me. So that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. Now, Christian, you know this when you come to believe that and everything changes, fear of God does not go away. Fear of God changes. You come to know that the God who stood ready to judge you is willing to save you. You come to learn that Aslan, the lion, would rather pardon you than punish you. You came to know his mercy When you did, your fear became another kind of fear, a new fear that drives you to God, not away from God. It is a deep reverence for God that leads to a desire to please him in all things. And so Solomon's words to you, believer, is with that kind of fear, fear God and out of gratitude for what he has done Keep his commandments. I'll close with this quote from Sidney Greedness. He says. After Jesus' death and resurrection. We seek to revere God and keep his commandments. Not because we dread the coming judgment. But because we are grateful for God's grace. In providing salvation for us through his son Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the wisdom that you have given us through Solomon in this book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the time you've given us to pour over this book and to think about it and to study it and to think about what it has to say about us, what it has to say about our lives and this world and what it has to say about your purpose for us. God, thank you. As we come to the close of this book, thank you for the gifts you have given us. Thank you for the blessings that you have given us. Would you help us, God, to enjoy the gifts you have given so that you would be praised, so that you would be glorified, so that you would be honored. Help us, God, we pray, to fear you, And to keep your commandments. Every day we have life. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.